The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Practicing the Way of Jesus, a study on the Sermon on the Mount. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Matthew 5:27-30. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for you, better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. And welcome to Sacred City Church. My name is Justin, and I am uh, the lead pastor here. Obviously, uh, I am not with you in person this morning. Um, It's really frustrating for me, but on Thursday night, kind of out of the blue, I lost my sense of smell and kind of, you know, knew the inevitable that I had the coronavirus. but I wanted to confirm it and make sure. Uh, obviously, I had to preach. I was just a couple days away from preaching a very difficult text, as you already heard read. And I uh, didn't want to just punt and, th- and uh, just throw that off on one of my residents or one of the other elders. Really wanted to be here in person to, to preach this to you this morning. Um, so I called uh, Dr. Lyons, figure out what I needed to do. We really couldn't find any... Um, uh, rapid tests around the Quad City, so I ended up driving uh, about an hour away into Illinois, finding a place that would give me a rapid test, getting tested, and uh, finding out, yes, I am positive for coronavirus. Um, I feel fine. Uh, literally, I just don't have any, a sense of smell. And um, other than that, I maybe might have a little bit of a you know runny nose or something, but um, pretty typical for this type of year. So Feeling fine. I just won't be able to be with you this week, um, but more than likely, I will be able to preach live next week because um, basically I only have to be quarantined or, or isolated for, for 10 days. So, so this morning, uh, from when my initial symptoms started, so this morning uh, I am preaching to you via the internet. Obviously, I'm in a room all by myself. And so um, as we get to some really awkward um, topics that we're going to be hitting this morning. I don't have to look into your face, so maybe that's good. I don't have to see you squirm and get really awkward, nor do I have to see any spouses elbowing them, them elbowing the other ones. So maybe this is actually a good thing. And, um, and if you just get up and leave, I won't even know it. So there you go. Um, well, so obviously, dealing with a top, difficult topic this morning, I've got a lot of work to do. And so I, I need to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to help us um, let me go ahead. Father, uh, first, we thank you for being God. We thank you for being our creator. We thank you for being sovereign over all things. We thank you for directing the affairs of this world how you see fit. We thank you for sending the Holy Spirit to lead us and direct us into all truth. And I pray even now, even though we're separated uh, by a day and we're separated by video and, and in person, that your Holy Spirit would unite us in faith. Uh, Father, I thank you for the evidence of grace that's already taken place on this Sunday morning as they're sitting there, the baptisms, and um, the, the fact that you've brought people who were spiritually dead to spiritual, spiritual life. We thank you for doing that. And now I ask that you would think through my mind, speak through my vocal cords, that your words 
from your scripture would illuminate our minds, direct us, lead us into all truth, Father, and straighten us out where we've gone wrong. Would you help your people hear your voice through my words this morning for your glory and our good? In Jesus' name. Well, I don't know if there's another passage in the Bible that is as directly contrary to the current moral values of American society as this one is today. Jesus doesn't just condemn adultery. He condemns the lust behind it. Now, if Jesus was on any network news today, if he was on a late night television show, if he was on the Joe Rogan podcast, he would be laughed at and called puritanical. He would be told that there is nothing wrong with lust. There's nothing wrong with pornography. There's nothing wrong with masturbation. This is basically how our society operates now. You could just call it cool shaming 101. Just looking down on people, calling them backwards, calling them foolish, trying to shame them into accepting the dominant narratives of our culture today. It's basically saying, just get with the program, man. Everyone does it. Everyone lusts. Everyone looks at pornography. It doesn't hurt anyone. It's 2020. Why are you so hung up on sex? Which is just kind of funny, like hung up on sex. If anyone's hung up on sex, it's our culture. You, you know, you can't turn on a Netflix show. You can't turn on a YouTube video. You can't turn on a toothpaste commercial without them using sex to sell us something. So if anyone's hung up on sex, it's not Jesus. It's not Christianity. It's our culture. We've gone crazy. Now, I get why they say that. See, see the, the underlying narrative that's driving this kind of just, just everybody's doing it, it's not a big deal, is again, it's coming out of mainly and predominantly um, the theory of evolution. That sex is just a biological need and it's just, we're just kind of driven by our lizard brain, put there by evolution that's just kind of meant to get us to reproduce. Now, if Jesus was sitting here, he would say, cool, cool, cool opinion, bro. But uh, I was the one who invented sex. I engineered it. I thought it up. I designed it for a very specific set of purposes. And only one of those purposes is reproduction. There's a whole lot more to sex than just making babies. So here's what I want to do today. First, I need to tell you what God has to say about sex. It's going to be a cursory overview from the Bible, okay? And it's going to be a lot different, more than likely, than you think. Secondly, I'm going to try to point out some ways that our culture um, has actually devalued sex. And then lastly, I'm going to deal with our text today, and we'll see if Jesus really knew what he was talking about. So three points, and yes, it is going to be a little awkward, okay? Number one, what does the Bible say about sex? Well, first, the Bible says that God created it, right? He designed 
with his hands the man's body to fit perfectly with the woman's. He created the pleasure spots. He designed the hormones and the pleasure centers in the human brain. Now, all that to say, God could have designed the reproduction process to be as simple and as innocuous as a handshake, but he didn't. God required nudity. Did you know that the Bible literally begins in the first couple chapters with men and women buck naked in the presence of God, right? Human beings made in the image of God and they're standing there before one another and before God stark naked. It's awkward, right? Adam and Eve and Adam and Eve standing there stark naked before God and what does God say about it? God says and the Bible says, it is good. They were naked and not ashamed. And God pronounced his blessing upon them. It is good. Now, so many people, they don't understand what the Bible teaches about sex and they have this underlying notion that God is somehow anti-sex. That he's ashamed by it, that it's something dirty that need, that's just done in a closet somewhere, right? That it's some kind of dirty, shameful act. Like God created Adam and Eve and he left them alone for five minutes and he came back shocked to find out what they were doing. They're making love. Oh my goodness, what are they doing in the bushes over there? Well, that's not the way it happens at all. When you read the Bible, when God made Adam and Eve, he knew exactly what he was doing. He designed her body to fit Adam's perfectly. That Eve was Adam's standard of beauty. She set the standard. This is what beauty is, Eve. She's made specifically for me. One woman for one man made specifically for me. She was his definition of the perfect woman. Then Adam speaks the first words of poetry in the Bible. And he says, wisely, men, all right? He's looking at his wife and he says, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. He's waxing poetically about the beauty and the perfectness of his own wife. Now, what is the standard of beauty? What is the standard of perfection? She was standing right before him. That was the standard. It wasn't something he learned on the internet. It wasn't what the culture said, a certain shape, a certain size, a certain hair color, a certain eye color. No, no, Adam's standard of beauty was his wife. And he speaks and tells her in no uncertain terms, girl, you look good and you were made for me. Now, this is when God literally performs the first marriage ceremony, and he walks Eve down the aisle and presents her to Adam. And then the scriptures say that Adam and Eve know each other. Now, when the Bible uses the, work, the words know each other, it means they had sex. We know this because the knowing produces a baby and not a book, okay? All of this was presided over 
by God himself. God created this whole scenario. God watched over this whole scenario. God blessed this whole scenario. He called it good. So from this really quick synopsis in the first few chapters of the book of Genesis, what do we learn about sex? One, it was created by God. Two, it was meant to be between one man and one woman. They were meant to be the standards of beauty for one another. Three, it was meant to be shared after they were united in the covenant of marriage. Now, I get it. We don't use the word covenant very often, but we need to understand what a covenant is. A covenant is the deepest of all human agreements. Okay? It is a legal agreement. It is a binding agreement, but it's the most deepest of all human agreements. It is uniting yourself together with another person. Now, you are in a covenant. You are uniting your families, your histories. You're uniting your finances. You're uniting your futures. You're uniting your emotions. You're uniting your hopes and dreams and plans. And then... After you do all of that uniting, all of that coming together, both sides of the family, making all these commitments to one another, it's legally binding, all this stuff. Then after that, you unite your physical bodies together as one. God says in Genesis 2, chapter 2, verse 24, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The Hebrew word for hold fast there is debak, and it literally means to be glued together. So a husband and a wife are to leave their families of origin and to be glued together in a covenant, right? Anytime you glue something together, if you try to tear it apart again, it's going to be destroyed and it's going to damage both sides, both pieces of that puzzle, right? So marriage here is in the Bible, according to God, is meant to be an exclusive, one man, one woman, lifelong, forever. You shouldn't pull those two things apart. Lifelong relationship. It's between man, woman, glued together for life before God. Okay? Now, why is that the case? Is that just kind of like an old-timey view of marriage? Why, why should... Why should someone, you know, wait until they're married to have sex? Well, the relationship between the husband and wife is meant to be the most intimate human relationship in our life. And in order for deep and real and lifelong intimacy to take place, there must already be stability, you know, the person's not going anywhere. If you know somebody could take off at any moment, you're not going to be intimate with them. You're not going to share your deepest thoughts and desires and feelings. It's got, there's got to be safety there. You're not going to do that to somebody who's going to, hurt, who's going to purposefully hurt you or lie about you or steal from you. There's got to be honesty. If I'm going to bear my soul, I'm, I'm expecting that person to bear their soul and have some trust. There's got to be a vulnerability, right? There's got to be fidelity, right? Um, 
uh, 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 I know you're not going to betray me. So here's what the Bible says. The covenant of marriage is meant to create this type of environment. It is two people standing before God saying, I commit before God and all these witnesses that I will be for you no matter what. I will love you no matter what. I will be faithful to you no matter what. I will be honest with you no matter what. I will be gentle towards you no matter what. I will be here for you in 50 years, Lord willing, no matter what. Through sickness, through poverty, through the emotional ups and the emotional downs, through seasons of ecstasy and seasons that feel like a desert, for richer or poor, till death do us part, I will be there for you. See, now it is only in that type of environment, that type of safe and stable environment inside a covenant of marriage where sex does what it is supposed to do, and that is to create and maintain real, lifelong intimacy. At its most basic level, sex is doing with your bodies what you've already done with every other part of your life through the covenant of marriage. Our finances have become one. Our families have become one. Emotionally, we've becoming one. Spiritually, we've become one. And then physically, the two become one. Now, here's something you might not have ever heard before. According to Scripture, sex is a covenant renewal ceremony. Every time a husband and a wife have sex, it is a reminder of the covenant they made before God and before one another. The covenant to love one another self-sacrificially, to lay aside my desires, to lay aside my needs in order to love the other to be faithful to one another, to generously give to the other, even when they aren't in the mood to do it or they don't really feel like it. And this is something utterly unique about the biblical view of sex. Sex is a covenant renewal Ceremony. Now I wanted to give you, there's really two sacraments in the, in the Christian church. One of baptism that you get to celebrate today. I wish I could have been there. I know we were baptizing a baby and like, in one service and we, I think Katie uh, got baptized in another service. I really wanted to be there. Now that sacrament is, is a sacrament of acceptance into the community of God. Okay, when you are baptized, you're brought into the covenant community. All right? Now, the, and it's symbolizing that you've been saved by God and brought into his family. Now, secondly, we have the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper is a covenant renewal ceremony. Every week we come together, the Lord, the Lord tells us to practice the Lord's Supper, to take part in this ceremony that we're renewing our covenant. That throughout the week we walked away from our covenant, we've sinned, we've broken relationship with God. 
But God brings us back in. He gives us grace upon grace. We hear the gospel. We confess our sins. He forgives us of our sins. And we renew our covenant with God and with each other every single week. Sex is like that for a marriage. Now, this is what's interesting. Unique to the Bible. Here's what the Bible says. It's completely opposite what the world says. In the biblical view of sex, sex as covenant renewal, as your bodies break down, as your bodies get worse and worse, the sex actually gets better and better. As you give yourself more deeply, more graciously, and more sacrificially to your spouse. Now, it is not my goal to make you blush this morning, but I make no apologies for the Bible. The Bible has some very strong things to say about sex. And I fear that most of us don't know what the Bible has to say about it. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to go to a few places that show us just how openly God condones sex inside marriage and how openly he speaks of sex inside marriage. First, let's go to Proverbs chapter 5, if you want to turn there with me this morning. Proverbs chapter 5. This is a father speaking to his son. Now, fathers, we can get really awkward around our children and not want to talk about sex, but that's not how the Bible tells us to be. The Bible tells us to take a head-on approach don't let your kids find out about sex through the internet or through their friends at school or whatever. You need to take a heads-on approach. In Proverbs chapter 5 is a godly father writing to his son about the dangers of sex outside of marriage um, and adultery. And he's going to spend a good chunk of the chapter warning him saying, listen, don't go the way of the adulteress. There's... There, for the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Sounds a lot like what Jesus says. He's saying, don't follow lust. Don't follow the adulteress. Don't have sex outside of marriage. It looks really good on the outside. But when you follow down that path, it's going to actually destroy your life. Now, he doesn't just, this dad doesn't just warn his son about the dangers of sex outside of marriage. No, he actually also shows him the goodness of sex inside of marriage. Look at verses 18 and 19. <clears throat> actually, I'm going to start with in verse 15. Drink water from your own cistern. Now he's talking about your wife. So he's literally, this is a, a euphemism here of have sex, have sexual relationships only with your wife. Drink water from your own sister, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Should you have sex with just anybody? No, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Look, let your fountain 
be blessed. Let your wife be blessed. Look, and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Now, this isn't some, you know, new, new rap song. This isn't lyrics and some, some dirty new rap song on the radio that you can only hear 30% of because every other word is bleeped out, right? This is the book of Proverbs. This is a dad writing to his son. Now, does that sound prudish to you? Does that sound kind of like the modern equivalent? Sex is dirty and sex is depraved, so only save it for the one that you love, <laughs> right? That's kind of the idea that I kind of grew up with and all the youth pastors told me about. No, he says, sex is meant to be exclusive between you and your wife, son. Two, sex is meant to be delightful. You should enjoy it. There's a reason she turns you on and it's okay. Enjoy it, let her delight always in her body. And then third, be intoxicated with that love. It's okay to go head over heels with your spouse. It's okay to be intoxicated. Be drunk on the love of your wife and not on pornography, not on adultery, not on other women. Now, just so you don't think this is just some kind of one-way street. This is some kind of patriarchal vision of marriage from the past. There's places in the Song of Songs where this gets totally turned around and I'm actually, I, I'm going to read it for you in the message, but I am almost embarrassed to describe for you exactly what she says about her husband. I'll tell you this though, she describes him a way where it is clearly she's talking about his naked body and she's looking on him and he's aroused and she's describing it in no uncertain terms, okay? It causes me to blush. I'm not gonna go there. I'm gonna read it in the message. It's very general in the message. Here's what it says. My dear lover glows with health. Red-blooded, radiant, he's one in a million. There's no one quite like him. My golden one, pure and untarnished with raven black curls tumbling across his shoulders. His eyes are like doves, soft and bright, but deep set, brimming with meaning like wells of water. His face is rugged. His beard smells like sage. His voice, his words, warm and reassuring. Fine muscles ripple beneath his skin, quiet and beautiful. His torso is the work of a sculptor, hard and smooth as ivory. He stands tall like a cedar, strong and deep-rooted, a rugged mountain of a man, aromatic with wood and stone. His words are kisses and kisses his words. Everything about him delights me, thrills me through and through. So yes, ladies, the Bible says you should be that into your man. Now, another place in the Song of Solomon, again, an Old Testament book of the Bible. Two married lovers are writing about their desire for one another. And he says to her this, how beautiful and pleasant you are. Oh, loved one, with all your delights, your stature is like a palm tree. 
and your breasts are like clusters. I say, I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruits. Oh, may your breasts be like clusters of the vine and the scent of your breath like apples and your mouth like the best wine. Listen, in no uncertain terms, the Bible is clear and direct. The Bible is pro-sex. People get so weird and so prude about it, but God doesn't. And the scriptures don't. In fact, in one place in the New Testament, um, some people in the city of Corinth wrote to the Apostle Paul and asked him, you know, basically now that Jesus has come and Jesus has saved us from our sin and Jesus went to the right hand of the Father and they believed Jesus could come anytime soon, now that all this has happened, should we stop having sex with our wives? In other words, is it a good and holy thing to abstain from sex? Should we like just study the Bible? Should we just go to church? Should we just do good and holy and righteous things and somehow avoid sex because maybe sex is somehow dirty or sex is just something we do physically? So, and they lived in a society that was sex-obsessed as much as our society is today. They would have temples where you could go and you could worship a god by having sex with a prostitute. The men had all kind. they didn't have monogamous relationships. Men had all, sex with all kinds of different women. And so Christians in this society were looking, okay, sex has obviously went bad here, so should we avoid it and only maybe have sex for procreational purposes? And the apostle writes back, and he answers their objections um, very clearly in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 2 through 5. And now listen, we need to hear this, Christians. I'm going to start in verse 1 of chapter 1 Corinthians 7. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is, is it good for a man not to have sexual relationships with a woman or with his wife? He says, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality... Each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, that means sex, and likewise the wife should have sex with her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, this is a very important principle. And again, you can see the self-giving nature of a covenant marriage and sex in a covenant of marriage, that in marriage, I'm giving my body to my wife. My body no longer belongs to me to, to rule it as I see fit. It belongs to her. Her body does not just belong to her. It also belongs to me. So I tell every single couple that I counsel in pre-marriage that you should make a commitment once you get married that you will never deny the other person sex when they want it. Now, I realize that that principle can be abused if somehow abusively or rigidly applied. But what I'm getting at is one of the greatest problems in marriage is 
selfishness. See, people deny their partner sex for selfish reasons all the time. And that creates a coldness, a deadness, a low level of anger, shame, and frustration that slowly kills the life and passion and love in a marriage. I've got a headache. I'm tired. I've had a hard day at work. The kids have been on my nerves. I'm not in the mood. On and on and on, the selfish reasons pile up. Where couples can go weeks, months, years without coming together in a covenant renewal ceremony of sex. And that is predominantly because my selfishness prevents me from giving myself to my wife when I don't feel like it. God's specific, I'm going to tell you, when you do that, you are sinning against your spouse and you're sinning against God. God specifically says here, do not deprive one another. Now, when I talk about this, people always ask me, is there like a quota? How often should we be having sex? Well, my answer is, as often as you want, but usually that is going to be a few times per week. I can tell you personally, in 16 years of marriage, I can count on one hand how many times my wife or I have denied each other. It's just a principle in our marriage. And I think it should be a principle in your marriage as well, taken directly from 1 Corinthians 7. Do not deprive one another. Now, not only does sex inside a covenant of marriage renew our covenant with one another and with God, in the words of Paul here in 1 Corinthians 7, it also fights against the sin, uh, fights against the temptation to sin Sexually, you see, he often says, he's like, don't go too long without having sex because the temptations to sin are out there and you're going to be tempted to lust. You're going to be tempted to look at something you shouldn't look at. You're going to be tempted to commit adultery. You're going to be tempted to fantasize. You're going to be tempted to masturbate. You're going to be tempted to do these things so you should have sex often. Now, here's the last thing I'm going to mention about sex. <clears throat> And honestly, from the Bible, it's one of the most shocking discoveries. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says that sex is a mystery, a great mystery, a mega mystery is what he says. And it's a mega mystery that points to the greatest union in the world. Paul says God created sex between a man and a woman to point towards something of even greater value, of even greater worth. An eternal love, an eternal covenant, an eternal acceptance, an eternal giving community called God. That when a husband and a wife come together and the two become one, that somehow that's pointing to the greatest mystery in the world, that in Christ, we can be brought into God himself. 
that just as a husband and a wife come together and are united in a covenant of marriage and sexual union, so are Christians united to God by faith. This means that sex is a sacramental analogy. It's a sign that's meant to point somewhere. It's a sign that points to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's an outward act that represents a spiritual reality. That God has made a covenant with us sinful people. That he promises to never leave us or never forsake us. That he has a one-way, self-giving love toward us. That while we were yet sinners, Christ came and gave himself for us and laid down his life for us. That he promises to love us no matter how we behave, no matter how we feel, no matter how sinful we are. He promises to love us at a huge personal cost to himself. That Jesus never looks at us and goes, oh, I'm going to be intimate with them or I'm going to love them if they do something for me. No, Jesus pursues us when we are unworthy. He loves us and he instigates intimacy with us while we're still sinning against him. That Jesus came to this earth to love us and save us from our sins, not because he felt like it, not because we had earned it, not because we were good enough, not because he was in the mood. He did it because he made a covenant with us and God to do it. Now, people sometimes say, well, I don't need a covenant to have sex. I don't need a covenant to love someone. I don't need to go to the courthouse and get married. I don't need a piece of paper to love someone. Well, okay, that's true. You don't. But a covenant creates a personal relationship which is more intimate and more loving because it is legal. It is more loving because it's legal, because it's covenantal. Let me explain. In a consumer relationship, the way that you and I relate to a vendor, a store, any place that we shop. You have a relationship with them as long as the vendor is giving you a product at a good price. But we're always shopping, right? We're always looking for an upgrade. So what we say to our vendors are, we say this, we have a relationship but you'd better keep adjusting to my needs, right? Because if you don't continue to meet my needs in the future, I'm out of here. I'm going to a different store. I'm going to a different vendor because my needs and my wants and my desires are actually more important than the relationship itself. Like I have, I don't really care about Walmart. If Walmart doesn't provide exactly what I want, when I want, for the price I want, I leave and I go to Target, or I go to Costco, or I go wherever I want to go. Now listen, that's a consumeristic relationship. A covenant relationship is exactly the opposite. A consumer relationship says, you adjust to me, or I'm out of here. You meet my ever-increasing, ever-changing needs, or I'm out of here. A covenant relationship says, I'm going to change for you. I'm going to adjust to you. I'm, I made a promise. I made a covenant. I made a, 
I signed on the dotted line and I made a commitment to you that says I'm going to adjust to you as your needs change, I'm going to change with you. And the relationship between us is more important to me than my personal needs or my personal desires or my personal wants in the moment. That my needs are less important in continuing this relationship as the relationship is. So I'm going to adjust my desires to you. Now, what I want you to see, this is what our American society has destroyed, okay? This is what, this is how our society has devalued sex. In American society, sex has been co-opted by capitalism. Sex has become just another consumer good. Sex is now a commodity to be traded. And some people say, if you were to remove sex from our society, our entire economy would collapse. Think about music industry, movies, advertising. That's everywhere. See, sex in consumerism, it's not a covenant that says the relationship is more important and I'm going to adjust my needs to your needs and we're going to be and I'm going to love you no matter what. It says I'll give you my body if you give me fill in the blank. And we the most simplest that you know we know this this is this is prostitution. I can buy someone's body if I pay them for sex. And that's illegal. Might not be for long, but that's illegal in most places in the United States. And yet there's the legal form of it is everywhere. It's affected nearly every level of even relationships in our society. Of course, it's, this is what pornography is. A person is willing to uncover themselves and show themselves and perform sexually for someone if you will give them likes, money, views, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. This is the world of sexting in Tinder now. If you want a young man's attention or you want a young woman's attention, you've got to be able to give up certain things. You give you you show pictures of yourself sexually. This is the, in fact, this kind of new school dating and, 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 and apps where people expect on the first or second or third date at the latest to have sex. I bought you dinner. I deserve some sex. It's consumerism. I bought you a $50 dinner and I deserve to sleep with you now. You see how that's devalued sex? It's 50 bucks at the most. Now, what's interesting too is this, this is everywhere. This is even in this modern phenomenon called cohabitating where two people move in together and they, they're playing house and they're acting like they're married but here's what statistics are showing us as now we've got a, a, a longer term trend where 
sociologists can study this, that one of the worst things for marriages is for two couples to move in together. It almost, it, 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 it almost um, makes it an automatic that these, that these two are not going to get married. The statistics greatly rise in the fact that this relationship is going to fail. Now, why is that? Because it's a consumeristic relationship. Here's what it looks like. When two people move in together, it's basically a perpetual job interview. Both people are, they, they feel a need to kind of perform, and if they don't perform, if they don't give the other person what they want sexually or in the home, then the person's going to be out of there. It's this perpetual job interview that we always have to kind of measure up. And guess what? Human beings aren't meant to live like that and relationships are messy and relationships are difficult and we do gross things and we don't do the dishes and we leave dirty clothes on the table. And if we're in a perpetual job job interview, it puts impossible demands upon a relationship. And that's why people break up so often in cohabitations. Another thing that happens in cohabitation is you're relating with someone, you're loving someone, you're living with someone, more than likely having sex with someone, while also always looking for them 2.0. You're always kind of in the back of your mind asking the question, yeah, yeah I like her or I like him, but is she really the one or, or, or is someone better out there? So you're always looking for the upgrade. Do you see the consumerism? You, you can't really give yourself wholly to another person when you're, when you're always scanning the horizon for someone who's better. Better looking, smarter, better off financially, you know, doesn't leave their clothes in a pile on the floor, et cetera, et cetera. Now, sadly, this idea, kind of this consumeristic idea of sex, has also infiltrated many supposedly Christian relationships. There's Christian books out there that teach you how to um, perform certain things in order to get what you want in a marriage. Right? Uh, there's books out there called Sex Begins in the Kitchen. So the idea is, if I do the dishes, then my wife is going to want to have sex with me. That's consumerism. It's not what the Bible teaches about sex. I know there's many people who, and many spouses who use sex as a bargaining tool in marriage. If you take me out on a date, then we can have sex. If you do all of these chores, then we can have sex. If you do this and you've performed well and you've been a good boy or a good girl, then we'll have sex. That is consumerism making its way into a Christian marriage and that is ungodly and not a biblical view of sex. That's selfishness, my needs, my desires. That's me literally saying, you meet my needs and I'll meet yours. That's not the way the gospel works. That's anti-gospel. And that's teaching our children an anti-gospel. Now, what's interesting to me is this cultural view of sex, sex as a commodity. It's basically this. Look at as much porn as you want. Have as much sex with as many people as you want. And then one day, when you're in your 30s, realize that you should probably settle down. Find someone who doesn't fight with you too often, who has similar hobbies that you do, um, that's kind of attractive, 
and get married and then you're going to have sex a few times to make babies. But other than that, you're just going to keep looking at pornography, keep taking care of yourself sexually, and this is the best it's ever going to be. This is the modern narrative. Have as much sex as possible, be as promiscuous as possible, but then when you get married, sex goes downhill. Now, first off, I want you to see how opposite that is of the Christian view of sex. That the Christian view of sex was that as our bodies get worse and worse, the sex gets better and better as we give each other, as we're giving ourselves more sacrificially towards the other person. It's the exact opposite for the Christian marriage. That's why statistically, Christians who get married early and they stay with their spouse have more sex over their lifetime than any other category of human on the planet because God loves sex inside of a marriage. So I think we should reject our culture's consumeristic view of sex and fully embrace God's view of sex. Now, let's turn to the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. <clears throat> You've heard that it said, Jesus is here quoting from the Old Testament, you shall not commit adultery. Adultery is cheating on your spouse. Adultery is sex outside of marriage. And Jesus is condemning adultery because adultery breaks a covenant. And it hurts. It's a sin against God. It's a sin against your partner. And it also hurts a lot of people in the process. Adultery destroys marriages. Adultery destroys families. Adultery destroys churches. Adultery destroys communities. Adulteries can destroy nations. He goes on. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Lustful intent now, let me be clear, it isn't just sexual desire. I can't lust for my wife, okay? Lustful intent is sexual desire pointed at someone other than your spouse. It's using sex like the world uses sex. It's turning another person into a product to be consumed. It dehumanizes. It objectifies. And Jesus, speaking 2,000 years ago, knew no one commits adultery by accident. Adultery begins with a look. It progresses to a thought in the mind. Hmm, I wonder what she looks like naked. It evolves into a fantasy. You start playing these scenarios out and working them out in your head. And then it grows, if unhindered, it grows into an act. Maybe a flirtatious act. And then that flirtatious act becomes a, hab a habit or a habitual pattern. And then that habitual pattern begins to work itself into us and creates a certain type of character. Now I become that type of person who does that. And then that type of person and that character actually leads me on a trajectory towards an eternity. 
So what Jesus is showing us here is there is a direct link between lust in our heart and adultery that destroys relationships, destroys covenant, and can actually send us to hell. There's a direct link there. If, if lust in our heart is left unresisted, if we don't fight against it, then that's going to lead a person on a downward trajectory that leads to hell, Jesus says. Now, our culture is trying to tell us, and it's telling our children in our public school systems, that porn doesn't hurt anyone. This is what they say. Porn doesn't hurt anyone. I don't know why has everybody got such a hang-up with porn. Porn doesn't hurt anyone. They say that's a private thing. It's not really going to affect your relationships. It doesn't hurt anyone. doesn't affect society. Well, I'm reading a book right now from Oxford Press, and it's just literally called Premarital Sex in America. It's not by Christians. It's a secular book, and it's studying specifically um, 18 to 24-year-olds, and they're saying... Th- the, the, the lie that our culture is saying that porn doesn't hurt anyone is empirically, statistically, factually, scientifically not true. Quote, porno- from the book, pornography now affects virtually everyone's relationships. Everyone, not just the people who use pornography. Pornography now affects almost everyone's relationship. Well, how? They have three things, three points, and they prove them all empirically. First, People who use pornography have crushingly unrealistic expectations regarding physical appearance and sexual performance. Crushingly unrealistic expectations about what a love partner or a marriage partner must look like and how they must perform. In other words, the music we listen to, the movies that we're watching, the pornography that our children and that everybody's seeing is putting unrealistic standards of beauty on everyone. So one person said, so now uh, young people have an automatic flaw-o-matic. They have a flaw-o-matic. Anyone who doesn't measure up to what they're seeing on a screen, they dismiss as a sexual partner. They dismiss as a future marriage partner. That they're literally looking for porno- to pornography for their standard of beauty rather than their spouse or their future spouse, okay? That's, that's crushing people. That's why um, so much surgeries and so, many, um, so much of that is going up and going through the roof. Secondly, they say a significant number of male porn users experience a diminished tolerance for the difficulties of real relationship and it shrinks the marriage pool for women. Okay? They say studies have proven that men who use pornography are far, far less interested and willing to get into the messiness of real relationships. As a result, pornography diminishes people's desire to get married. We're getting married later and later and later or not at all. It's one of the reasons why the pool is shrinking and why the number of people who are getting married is going down. John Mayer famously said this nearly 10 years ago that real women are just too difficult and too messy right now. He would rather look at pornography and masturbate. This is going on in our culture today. Third, they they argue that all women are increasingly being forced to accommodate sexual behavior and their appearances to the images and styles of pornography. They're, They're having to 
shape themselves in the image of whatever porn actress, their boyfriend, or whoever it is, is interested in. Now that means, whether you know it or not, the fashion industry is looking at porn and they're designing their stuff out of porn. The music industry is looking at porn and designing their videos out of porn. Your boyfriend is probably looking at it and that's what he expects from you. Other people are doing it with this, this worldwide Zoom phenomenon. All kind of people have been caught looking at pornography while they're supposed to be on Zoom calls. Even people on, on CNN have been fired for it. Right, And this is damaging, most of all, it's damaging our whole society, but most of all, women, they're, ex- they're now expected to be that, look like that, do that. Now, Jesus, writing 2,000 years ago, says Christians must not participate in sex the way that the world does. It's not a, a consumeristic good. It's meant for covenant renewal. And so he goes on and he says some pretty harsh things. He says, it's better for you to rip out your eye and cut off your hand than look at a woman with lustful intent. What's he saying there is Christians must take serious actions against the lust in our heart and in our life. He's not telling us to literally do it. He's not telling us to literally rip our eye out or cut out our hand. He's saying we must stop looking at things that inflame our lustful desires. We must not do things that make others into sexual objects for our own gratification. Theologian John Stott said of this verse, quote, what Jesus was advocating was not a literal, physical self-maiming, but a ruthless, moral self-denial. Not mutilation, but mortification, putting to death. Mortification is the path of holiness he taught and mortification or taking up the cross to follow Christ means to reject sinful practices so resolutely that we die to them or we put them to death. What does that mean? That means as a Christian, there are things that I can't watch. Maybe that I want to watch. Everybody that I'm talking to saying, did you watch this on HBO? Have you seen this series on Netflix? And I can't watch it because I'm a Christian and I know that would inflame the lust in my heart. That would invite consumeristic ideas of sex into my own marriage and it would break covenant with my wife and it would be a sin against God. So I can't do that. There are a lot of things that Christians should not listen to and cannot listen to in good conscience. We must be like Job in the Old Testament who said he made a covenant with his eyes not to look upon any other woman than his wife with lustful intent. Now, I know that was a lot and I know all of us, everyone in this room is probably feeling convicted in some way or form. Me as well, obviously. We've all come from different places. We grew up in a culture that that objectified women, that objectified us. We've used sex as a commodity. commodity. We use it as a, a bartering tool in marriage. We use it to get that guy's attention. We use it to keep that guy um, in a relationship or keep that girl in a relationship. We use it in, in pornographic ways. We've sinned in many different ways. So what, what do we do? Well, the message of the Bible is not just, if you sin, you're going to go to hell. That's not what the message of the Bible is. The message of the Bible is that Jesus came to save 
sinners like us. Jesus came to rescue us from our lust, to rescue us from the the reality that our lust left unchecked will lead us to hell. Jesus came to rescue us from that. This is why he died. He paid our punishment. He went to hell in our place. He took our lust to the cross and he absorbed the wrath of God for us in our place. Now, what does that mean? That means we, when we turn to Jesus, we turn away from our lust, we confess our sins, God, I've been lustful, and maybe even I'm addicted to lust, and I'm addicted to these patterns of looking at pornography or, or objectifying women or using sex as a commodity in, in, in my marriage, and I repent of it, I see the wickedness of it, and I turn to your idea of marriage. And I want to embrace that and I want to be this person with a heart that loves you more than I love sex and more than I love what sex can give me. And so the Christian turns to Jesus, they're washed clean, they're wiped and cleansed from all their sin and brought into the family of God and the Holy Spirit comes inside them and now, and and really we're given weapons now. If you want to learn about those weapons, go to Ephesians chapter six, but prayer and Bible reading and community and now we fight lust. That's what we do. We wage war against lust and we're never going to win completely. We're never going to be spotless and free of lust. We're going to be constantly fighting. C.S. Lewis says, you can't stop a bird from flying over your head. That means you can't stop a lustful thought from entering your head, but you can stop a bird from making a nest in your hair, right? And that's what we're called to do. Yes, we're going to have lustful thoughts. Yes, we're going to look at someone and, be, and, and our sexual desire goes, wow, that person's really good looking or whatever. And then we have to mentally take it into our thought and say, I'm going to turn from lust. I'm going to put it on my wife. I'm going to think about my husband and I'm going to turn from this. And I'm not going to walk down that path. That's what the life of the Christian is. being Confessing our sins, being totally forgiven, totally welcomed in, and then empowered to live differently. And so... We fight. Old Puritan John Owen said, we fight against sin and we, t- we should be killing sin or sin will be killing us. That's the goal. We fight it, we resist it, or it's going to kill us and destroy us. Now I pray that you would turn to Jesus this morning and you would put your faith in him and you would be forgiven of all your sin. And then when, as if you're a Christian, you would come down to the table this morning and you would have a covenant renewal ceremony. I pray all of this for you. Father God, I thank you for giving us Jesus. Jesus, I thank you that your body was broken. I thank you that, you that your blood was shed to forgive us of all of our sins, that you welcome sinners into your family, that you wash us clean and you empower us to live differently. Would you do that for your people today? In Jesus' powerful name, amen.